Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Second Kings chapter 18. This is exactly where we left off last week. So we'll pick up there. It came to pass, now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. This is the best intro we've had on a king since David. So we're introducing a winner at this point. Praise the Lord. It's almost the exact amount of right of time of bad king, bad king, where you just get so discouraged. Maybe we're never going to see a good king of Israel. And then Hezekiah shows up. He did everything right. He has we have had months of bad examples, but we're actually going to see a mostly good example of how to do this right. And what a joy that is. So it's the third year of Hosea. So there's three more years of the northern kingdom giving tribu tributes, and then they're going to have that three-year siege of Samaria. Hezekiah's first six years as a king, he watches what happens to the northern kingdom. He watches the decimation of the northern kingdom. That's not the only thing, though, that you'd say, well, he's just a great king and everything went great for him, but it, he overlaps. We expect that he overlapped some time with Ahaz as a co-regent with him, so there's some overlapped time when he becomes king, but Ahaz is still alive. Um, verse 13, it's going to be his 14th year as, a, as the sole leader of Israel when we get there. Hezekiah then comes to reign as the northern kingdom falls. And here's the other thing. Ahaz was the worst king that Judah had. He was giving some of his children to Molech. So Hezekiah's brothers and maybe sisters were being given over to child sacrifice. That's a terrifying way to grow up. Because what if dad thinks you should be the next sacrifice? So this is what Hezekiah grows up with. And, be, and I think because of that, he goes the exact opposite direction. We're getting back to Yahweh because we don't do child sacrifice. Verse 4, he removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke it in pieces, the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Oh, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him, none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor, were, were bef nor who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. This is high praise, not just great. This is better. And the best King Israel has even before him in verse five, if you go before him, we are talking about Solomon and David too. 
So the best that they had on either side of things. So we go from Ahaz to Hezekiah. We get the worst king that Judah gets to the best king Judah's going to get. And what's odd to me is most people have heard of David and Solomon, but Hezekiah, it's kind of a hit or miss. People have even heard of this king. Because you got to get through all the garbage and kings and keep reading until you hit Hezekiah and you get this great example. Um, what did he do? Four, verse 4, he removed the high places. We've talked about these before. These are worship centers that if you had a big hill, that's where you'd have parties at. Um, so we could say he took down the strip clubs would be an equivalent today. Um, none of the other kings going all the way back, even to Solomon, had the courage to get rid of these places because they were money makers, they were popular with the people, and there's a segment of the population that would go to these places and have big drunken revelries. So they were popular places to get rid of, and for a king to get rid of a place like that, the king had to not worry about his reputation. So then he broke in pieces the bronze serpent. This is a thing. This thing's still around. And, you know, you go back and you think about it. And yeah, okay, yeah, it's been around since Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. And the Lord said to Moses, make you a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looks on it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he was beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. It was this crazy image of not looking at these snakes that were biting you and turning your eyes and fixing them on this image of sin being put upon a, a cross or on a pole. And so if you just turned your attention, you'd be saved from this. So for 800 years, Israel kept that serpent, which makes sense. It's a great artifact. They put it in their little museum in Jerusalem, put it behind a nice glass case, give it some security. The problem here is they started to burn incense to it. So they started to not celebrate the imagery of it, but started to worship it themselves. But still, think of, if we had an 800-year object, it would be in a museum, it would be cherished. To walk into that museum and rep that thing because it was evil, or because, and initially it wasn't evil, but because of what people had made it, we, and that's almost unthinkable today. Like, we wouldn't take an 800-year-old relic and, and break it for some reason, but it's a beautiful image of salvation, and Jesus even used it. And I think this is interesting, because Hezekiah wrecks the actual artifact. We don't have it to look at. But John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but, we, but have eternal life. This image of lifting up the serpent and killing it was an image of killing sin. And it's the thing that Jesus uses to connect directly to the cross. So this image is a beautiful thing. God wanted the image for his plan. Jesus used it himself. But he didn't actually need the object. He needed the, the story to be remembered. And so Hezekiah wrecks the object because the object isn't the thing that's important. The idea was the thing that's important. One takeaway from this, I'll leave a little commentary. It is really easy to turn a good thing into an idol. Because this was a good thing, undeniably an act of God, a wonderful miracle, a blessing for the people of Israel. And yet the people had turned something that was good into something that was bad by how they treated it. And we do that all the time. We can turn those things we love, things that are overall good, but when we start to worship them instead of the Lord God Almighty, they become idols in our life. So this is where, as Christians, we get this idea that you can take a political leader and put them up higher than they should be. You can take tasty barbecue at the men's conference and make it more important than the teaching of the word. It's easy to do these things. We can look to politics. We can, we can even elevate herbal tea. Uh, 
and put it on a higher pedestal than it should be and be a tea foodie, right? And we can start to worship things like that. We can do it with church habits, how we do things, the order of events, how we structure things. We can do it with music, 401k plans, degrees and titles. We can do it with our own hobbies and we can make the hobby the thing that we're more passionate about in life than serving the Lord God Almighty. These are all good things and you'll often hear me pick on these things. But it's not that they're bad things in and of themselves. It's that they're bad things when they take preference over God. So those hobbies can all be very good things in our life. We all need to take a breath sometimes and take a breather and a break. It's not the break that's bad. It's where our worship goes. So this object was there. They called it Nehushtan. Or actually, if you read the sentence, it's Hezekiah that calls it that, right? So, um Hezekiah cut down the wooden image and broken pieces, the bronze serpent. And then it says, and called it Nehushtan. So what's Nehushtan mean? It means piece of brass. And you'll hear me do this too sometimes. Some, sometimes when we idol, idolize things, we give it more importance than it should have. One of the ways to bring healing is to name it what it is. It's a big hunk of brass. It's not this wonderful thing. It's not the, the magical serpent that you should burn incense to and pray to. It's just a hunk of brass. And in the Bible, we often see God refer to the things that human hands have made, things of stone and things of wood that humans give more a credit to as a, as a force of existence than we should. And to call it once again, it's just a big hunk of wood. It's a pretty hunk of wood. It's a hunk of wood. And that's what Hezekiah does. He calls it or names it a piece of brass because that's what it is. So it's not a hero, it's not a person, it's, it, or it's, not, it's not Zeus, it's a carved piece of rock that looks like a human, right? It's not actually a PhD, it's a piece of paper on a wall. And to call that thing what it actually is, is sometimes takes the magic or the mystique out of it. Hezekiah destroys it because it has become a spiritual distraction for the people of Israel. It's an idol. So he gets rid of it. No harm, no foul. For it was for he held fast to the Lord and did not depart. Likely as a prince raised by priests, Isaiah we know is one of those godly people that was in Hezekiah's life. If I could have anybody as my personal advisor and mentor in life, Isaiah would be a good start. And if you read the book of Isaiah, he's a prolific writer, but he was a man of God through and through. So as one brother's getting killed to Moloch, this other lesser son is over at the temple coming under the wings of the priests. Often with the younger sons, they would go serve the temple as a gift from the family. So Hezekiah is maybe one of the lesser sons that Ahaz doesn't regard very highly. And instead of treating him as a sacrifice to Moloch, he pushes him off to the priest down at the temple. And he gets raised largely by those folks. A lot like Samuel's history and background. And he kept his commandments, which for David is a good thing. It's expected that the kings keep the commandments. Hezekiah actually does. Verse 6, I want to point this out, is how the writer introduces us to Hezekiah. So everything that we're going to do the rest of this chapter, we have to keep in mind, the context of this is Hezekiah held fast to the Lord and he did not depart. And we're going to get to some stuff that a lot of people, I think, interpret this chapter oddly, even people I respect and regard. But we have to understand the context that the writer gives us is that he followed the commandments and he didn't depart from them. So when we see things that he's doing here, there's one way to read it. There's, there's a contextual way to read it, too. It's not what we expect that he should do when he's fighting the Lord's battles, but he does some very clever things when he fights the Lord's battle. He's a, he's a shrewd character. 
So where David was bold in combat and, and was a flamboyant character and he was and enthusiastic in all that he did and Solomon was wise and thoughtful and did economic kinds of things, Hezekiah was clever as heck. He was a smart guy that played games at different levels. And so you have to read Chronicles, Kings, and even the book of Isaiah to get a sense of the layers that Hezekiah is operating at. But I, for me, that's a great study, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Uh, verse 7, the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. These are monumental tasks that they give us in two sentences. Frankly, they weren't even done by Solomon. Solomon had control of the trade routes, but he never really subdued the Philistines. David fought with them, got some temporary reprieves here and then. But to rebel against the king of Assyria, by any historical standard, Hezekiah's a small tribal king at this period in history. Assyria is Assyria. They're huge. And so um, I don't want to speak too harshly against the Assyrians because Mike Houck keeps reminding me that he's of that descent. Um, and we love Mike Houck, but he's been saved by grace, praise the Lord. Um, by any standard, the Assyrians at this point in history um, are, are absolutely dominating the Fertile Crescent. They've at this point challenged and rivaled Babylon. They will eventually overcome Babylon. They are beating back the Egyptians. They have no known notable enemies to the north that even make the history, history books because they've so um, dominated this area. So Hezekiah prospers even as Assyria is eradicating the northern kingdom. We should note that. Judah is rising in strength while the northern kingdom's falling apart partially because Hezekiah picks faith over sight. There's plenty of things for him to look at that are not hopeful, right? If Assyria is beating up on Babylon, how much of a chance does Jerusalem have, really? Right? Realistically, they have no chance. They're going to be overwhelmed by a flood. At this point, Assyria was marching armies in the hundreds of thousands of men. Judah had maybe 50,000, 60,000 men. So they're, they're absolutely outmatched. Hezekiah prospers even as his father was one of the worst kings Judah had had and had, helped, had shriveled their economy to the point, partially because he chooses wisdom over the pride of his father. So Hezekiah is good in just so many ways. Verse 8, he subdues the Philistines. Likely what this means is they get the fertile area between the Mediterranean and Jerusalem. This is the trade route. This is the natural trade route between Egypt and Assyria. So by subduing the Philistines and taking control of that trade route, he controls a major trade route and funding that comes from the taxation that goes with it. It is easy at that point for a nation to prosper even within a year of controlling that route. So the money coming in would change the game entirely. Um, when it says as far as Gaza, we know that that's going to be everything from Egypt to the south all the way up to Megiddo in the northern kingdom or the Valley of Jezreel. So the watchtower to fortified city is nonspecific. And I think part of that is it's a phrase for he controlled the region completely. Every watchtower, all the fortified cities, he was in control of this area. That leaves Judah as independent, surrounded, and righteous. And this is a great place for believers to be. Independent, surrounded, and righteous. 
And I love that. I like this setup. So it's promised to Solomon by David. This is the theme of the entire book of Kings. This is what we started with. First Kings chapter two, verse one. If your children take heed to their way and walk before me in truth with all their heart and their soul, they shall not fail thee as a man on the throne of Israel. So this is the promise. If any of these kings would have followed the Lord, they would have gotten prosperity. They would have won their battles. So Hezekiah, I think what the writer's pointing out with these first eight verses is Hezekiah did it the right way and he thrived in doing it. His problems and trials were not internal. They came from outside. And believers, we have the same thing. When we walk according to the Lord, our lives thrive. We have peace in wealth or in poverty. We have peace in jail cells or in freedom. We have peace wherever we go because we know where our end is, right? The problems we run into are from the outside. They're from people that don't like how peaceful we are and how joyful and content we are. So this is a very kind intro, and now we get an example of what that looks like. And this has been true of the, and I think it's important to understand the whole book of Kings. All of Kings has said something about the king and then told us a story that backs up what they said about him. So what they say about Hezekiah is he walks righteously, and the story we get doesn't really look that way. Verse 9. Now it came to pass in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. So he's watching the northern kingdom go down. At the end of three years, they took it. And in the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. This would give caution to what happens when you step on Assyria. You stop making payments to Assyria, if you look at the northern kingdom, they erase you from the planet, right? It's total domination politics, right? So th this is all happening in verses 9 and 10. Hezekiah is watching all of this happen. Everything in the flesh says, just pay them their dues. Let them be your new boss because they're going to, if you don't, they're going to just end you. Verse 11, then the king of Assyria carried away Israel captive to Assyria, put them in Hala by the harbor by Haber and the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So they transplanted them all over the kingdom because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses, the servant of the Lord had commanded, and they would neither hear nor do them because they spiritually failed. They politically failed. They, and, and again, the author makes this point in verse 12, and they're setting us up to understand what this next story is about. Hezekiah stops paying tribute even though he saw the northern kingdom stop paying tribute and he saw what happened to them. He still does it anyways. They see cruelty. They have every reason that the coiling Assyria is going to strike and they need to be careful when that happens. In verse 12, it says, because they didn't obey the Lord, the writer frames that that's what was happening there. It was a spiritual battle. It wasn't that Assyria was so strong. It's that the people didn't follow the king. So instead of fearing Assyria, they need to understand God more. This is, they see God lifting his hand, and the author then starts out with a list of all the good things he did, verses 3 through 8, and then the very nasty, scaly world that he faces in verses 9 through 12. Hezekiah did everything right. The world around him was made, gave him no reason to do it the right way. He did it all despite what he saw, because he's walking by faith and not by sight. So this faithfulness that he has, and I think this is, 11 and 12 are good verses because they tell us Hezekiah didn't have it easy. 
Sometimes we think, oh, I'd follow the Lord better if it was easy to follow the Lord. But the reality is those people that follow the Lord generally start doing it when it's tough. And what looks like an easy walk has actually been gone through some godly challenges. And those challenges shouldn't be avoided. Hezekiah doesn't avoid the challenges. Assyria turns its fangs on Judah five years later, verse 13. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. That doesn't sound like prosperity. That sounds like getting absolutely owned. And then Hezekiah, the king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will pay. And the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. That's a kingdom's ransom. That's way too much money. So Hezekiah came, gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord. Doesn't say how much silver he gave him. So he probably didn't fill this amount. This was almost too much to ask, especially because Ahab had screwed up the treasury so bad. And, and, uh, and, I'm sorry, he gave him all the silver that was in the, found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. He cleaned out the bank at the temple, cleaned out the bank at the house, gave him all the silver he had. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the pillars which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave to the king of Assyria. This tells us a few things. First, during those initial years of his kingship, he actually coated the pillars, remember there are two pillars in front of the temple, coated them with gold which tells us something about Hezekiah's prosperity. It also tells us that Hezekiah would, was not only fixing a beat-up temple, he actually was gilding the temple. And this would have been just gorgeous. If you've ever seen a building coated with gold, they have some of these, especially in the Muslim world. They, make the, they light up like a light bulb, and they're gorgeous. So what Hezekiah is doing by stripping those things. So this is... These verses get really tough for people. Why did we start out that Hezekiah is doing so great and following the Lord, and yet here he is saying things like, I've done wrong, turn away from me to the king of Assyria. Doesn't it sound like he's just appeasing or he's bowing to this new king? But it doesn't say he bowed. It says he sent a message saying, well, how much money you want? And I think this is something with the godly in the flesh, we always think of money as equivalent with prosperity. Hezekiah doesn't give a rip about silver and gold. He cares about people's lives. And so by giving away silver and gold, I don't think he, in, from a faithful perspective, he's not giving away anything. He's just giving his people time. But trouble is coming, and he sees this chance to come in. I think any time with Assyria, they see a chance to cancel Jewish culture, they're going to do it. Satan does the same thing. If he can cancel culture, he will. It's what he does. And so the promise of Jesus comes through that tribe of Judah, and there's only one tribe left to eradicate from the earth. This is when God steps in, and he has for his people all the time, at the Red Sea with Egypt. And when it looks like the Jewish people are about to be snuffed out, miraculous things start to happen. And it doesn't matter how big of a force, you know, Satan has gathered, be it the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Germans of the modern era, they think they can snuff out the Jews, but they never can. And they always implode historically. So Assyria comes up against them. Violence is underway. Um, all the fortified cities of Judah go down. This leaves Jerusalem as the last city left. When they say Lachish in this verse, Lachish is 30 miles away from Jerusalem. It's the next town over. You know, it's like saying they took all of Minnesota and then they're going to have a meeting over in St. Cloud. Well, that's even too far away. That's a half an hour away. Stillwater. Stillwater. 
right? We're that close. Like the Assyrian army is in Stillwater and, and we're the next town over, right? So Lachish is 30 miles away. That key stronghold falls. Historic accounts show Lachish was a stronger stronghold than Jerusalem. It was a very defensive city. The Assyrians were so proud of defeating Lachish, the king ordered what's today the Lachish reliefs. They're floor-to-ceiling, rock-carved reliefs that go about 30 feet. And they surrounded one of the palace rooms when they started to dig these up. Right now, they're in the British Museum. So if you ever go to London and you want to see these, the Lachish reliefs are huge. And they tell a story. Sennacherib records that he defeated 46 Jewish cities in this empire. He took over 200,000 people captive and hauled them away as slaves. He sends threats to Hezekiah at every stop. I just took this town. I just took that town. That Bethlehem, it doesn't, I just wiped it out. Nazareth, I haven't even heard of. Jericho, mine. So he's going through all these towns. Beth Shemesh, mine. Um, and he sends taunting messages to Hezekiah at every step. Start paying your tribute. Sennacherib was proud. When you look at these reliefs, he was proud of the fact that he's wiping out the Jewish people. He was looking forward to it and he wanted nothing there. He had no reason to. If he could just control the plains of Gaza, he would have had the trade routes back. Makes no military sense why you would bother with Jerusalem. It's a small little husk up in the hills that you don't really need to bother with. He bothered with it because evil was on his heart. And evil wants to destroy them. So what's interesting about the, the Laakish reliefs, they're called the Laakish reliefs because they end without an end. The story doesn't end. They're kind of left hanging. It looks like the defeat of Lachish was the defeat of the Jews. So when you look at the reliefs, they don't really tell the end of the story. And I like this part. They also show ugly, nasty torture scenes of what they did to the Jewish people. So it's not that Hezekiah had it easy. It's not that following the Lord meant that everything was going to be sunshines and rainbows. right? So we should note that at the very same time, Hezekiah's walking around Jerusalem telling people things. And we don't get this in Kings, which is interesting. 2 Chronicles 32, this is what Hezekiah says. Thus says Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? Does not Hezekiah persuade you to give yourselves over to die by famine and by thirst, saying, the Lord our God will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria? Hezekiah's walking around town saying, you know what? Don't worry. The Lord's going to the Lord's going to save us. The Lord's going to keep us. I think that when he, when he says things like that and he's going to try to do everything he can do to keep the Assyrians off of them, as things look like they're the end, Hezekiah prioritizes survival. So here's how he does it. He goes to the king and says, I've done wrong. Turn away from me. Please leave. Why is Hezekiah doing that? And some people, in fact, every commentator I looked at said it's because he had a lack of faith here. He faltered. Yet most commentaries say that, and frankly, that's a perfectly okay to read this, but you know me, I like to give you alternative ways to look at some of these texts. If it's the case that he had a lack of faith, why the 8-9 verse intro in this chapter telling us how great he was? That would defy the entire format for kings. That They define a king and they show us an example of why they're that way. But here they define a king as great, and then they show us a story where it looks like he's not so great. But there's no written condemnation anywhere in this chapter that what he does is not condemned. Moreover, to say, how much money do you want? Please leave us alone. That's not breaking any of the commandments. 
and he's praised for holding to the commandments. So another way to read this is that he's giving shrewd appeasement. This is a military strategy. By buying some time for himself, other things can be happening in the background. And that's the part that King, it's the part that's not here that's most interesting to me. So saying what they want to hear, it takes time to carve and shave gold flakes off of the pillars, right? Assyrians, just give me some time. We've got to shave these flakes off and you'll get all this gold in your pocket. We'll clean out the treasuries and put them in chests, but then we've got to put them on a donkey and walk the donkey all the way over to you 30 miles away, that buys some time too. What's he buying time for? So if there's not much left in the first place, and it doesn't say that he met the demands of Assyria, but he still sent them everything he had, we have this idea. What about carving gold flakes off the pillars? Is that breaking the law? No, because God never said to overlay those pillars with gold in the first place. He never asked for them to be gold overlaid. So to take the gold off isn't breaking any commandment of God's. What about the doors? He's taking the gold off the doors. Same thing. There's no rule that says there has to be gold on those doors necessarily. So he's doing these things, and and doors can be replaced. They have often had kings that had the, the temple relics taken away, and then good kings come and just rebuild those things. So here's a thought. Verse 14, the king of Assyria assessed Hezekiah, and so in verse 15, silver, in verse 16, gold is the stuff that he's scraping together to make as much of this payment as he can, probably put together a speed bump of that value level. Those values are in the millions of dollars. So scraping this off, sure, there's money there. Um, it's an enormous fee, and it would take enormous actions and time to put all that together. So Hezekiah complies. Does Hezekiah, though, think that this is going to stop the Assyrians? And that's a good question. So as he's, it sounds like he's failing, but then you got verse 6 saying that he's not. It's something about the heart. There's nothing here that says Hezekiah loses heart. And I think that's important. He's thinking maybe the lives of the people of the Jewish people are more important than the gold that he's giving away. And that, frankly, I think that's a good king that cares more about people than stuff. When David's soldiers were hungry and starving, he went into the temple and took the showbread and ate it. And it wasn't held against David. It wasn't a sin. It's even something Jesus used as an example saying, look, people are more important than money. And sometimes when people are hurting, you should just empty the temple out and feed them and do what you need to do to help them. So Hezekiah thinks, if he thinks appeasement will work, he's dead wrong. Evil never quits. Assyria's not going to stop. They haven't gone through all this trouble to stop. This is like Winston Churchill in the Darkest Hour movie. They accredit a quote to him. You've heard this one. You can't reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. That's the situation for Jerusalem right now. Assyria's completely got them and ready to eat them. There's only one city left. You can't negotiate with somebody from that position. Yet Hezekiah seems to be negotiating. He introduces the conversation. Why? 16, it says, at that time. It even makes reference of a time or a period of time here. And I think this is what's brilliant here. It's wise. The, the negotiations with Assyria create an interesting pause where the ty- tiger gets to play with its food. But what it doesn't know is that it's it, it, the one way to beat that one way to beat a tiger is to let it think that you ha- it has its head in your mouth, but what you just threw it was a big hunk of meat. You throw gold in front of Assyria, they think they're winning. So he's getting a different message. What he's saying to the people, according to the Chronicles passage, is the Lord God will deliver us. 
he's putting faith in the Lord here and telling people the same thing. Second Kings 2020, um, it talks about when it summarizes Hezekiah's reign, it talks about how he made a pool, a conduit, and brought water into the city. It's an interesting passage. If you go to Israel today, what he did is he dug a thing called Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's a third of a mile long, or 583 yards, and it, and it goes from the pool of Siloam, and it creates a back channel for the water from that spring to go into. Usually the spring would overflow, and the water that would go out would go down into the Kidron Valley and out through the Little River. That meant that an attacking army could get fresh water sitting outside the gates of Jerusalem. But according to 2 Kings 2020, he actually made a pool and a conduit and brought water into the city. In other words, if you're sitting outside Jerusalem, there's no longer any fresh water. That's a problem in the Mediterranean. If you have 100,000 plus people, you need fresh water. So what is all this time for? I would argue that over this time, and this is interesting, it's one of the greatest feats of engineering on the planet. Two teams from each direction, there's a plaque in the middle that tells us this. Two teams from each direction started carving from opposite directions. They actually adjust and recurve and they hit within 12 inches of each other. So there's a little jog in the middle of about 12 inches. The entire thing has a .06 grade from the pool to the other end over the course of a third of a mile. They don't really know without echolocation and lasers and everything else. They don't really know how this happened. Other than the two teams of guys with chunks carved through solid rock and made this tunnel to make it so the water wouldn't go outside the city. It's brilliant. And even today, tourists, you can go through the tunnel and walk the hike and you'll be about this high in water to this day. So at this point in time, I think he's buying time to finish the tunnel. And that's what he's doing here. So the Chronicles, a strategic record of this. I want to go to Chronicles. I don't jump generally jump to Chronicles. But to understand this chapter right, we have to know the other side of the story. Second Chronicles 32. He took counsel with his officers and his mighty men to stop up the waters of the fountains that were outside the city, the Pool of Gihon. And they assisted him. And a large multitude gathered and stopped up all the fountains and the streams that flowed into the midst of the land, saying, Why should the kings of Assyria come and find water? 2 Kings 32.5 And also he strengthened himself, and he built up all the wall that was broken and raised it up to the towers, and another wall without, and repaired the Milo in the city of David, and made darts and shields in abundance. We have to know that what looks like a lapse of faith in, the, in this chapter, in 2 Kings 18, that that's what he's doing on the other side of things. So he's playing Assyria when he does this, and there's layers to what he's doing. Why all the preparation if you think that appeasement's going to work? Well, remember one of his forefathers, they came in, the northern kingdom came in and ripped down a segment of the wall. Hezekiah rebuilds the whole thing because he's about to get attacked. He puts his defenses up. He puts his faith in God's word, and I'm guessing Isaiah has prophesied that they're going to attack. He knows what's going to happen. So why would they dismantle the massive pillars while they're digging a defensive tunnel at the same time? Why would they build up the walls if they think appeasement's going to work with Assyria? So the, and the reality is, I think spiritually he's smart. The gold means nothing. Building up the walls means everything. Getting ready for an assault is what's going to happen. To protect the good living water and build walls around your life, not such a bad spiritual principle either. Be keeping the drink, the Holy Spirit close, and they give this tiger some time to chew on something before the attack. 
One way to beat a tiger is let it think it's chewing on your head when you're really walking around behind with a machete. And then you get the tiger from the back. That's how you beat tigers. So Second Chronicle also uses the word comfortably. Interesting. Hezekiah comfortably went around to the people and he told them, be strong and courageous, just like Joshua said. He's read the word. Be not afraid nor dismayed at the king of Assyria, nor all the multitude that's with him, for there will be more with us than are with him, just like the prophets were shown. Like Hezekiah is trusting in the word. He hasn't seen it himself necessarily. There's no record of that. But he's reading the Bible and telling people what it says. Don't worry. Trust. The intro shows how solid he was. Chronicles shows the preparations he was making. And then Isaiah actually talks about the words that he was speaking to the people of Israel, the warnings against trying to partner with Egypt. And so Assyria still attacks. We also know that. All of those things give evidence here to the fact that Hezekiah didn't lose faith here. He was just playing Assyria here. So just another way to read that. Um, Not only that, the, the text itself never condemns Hezekiah for this. It will condemn him for showing Babylon his treasure houses, but it doesn't condemn him for this at all. It sets it up as that he's doing everything right. So like with the bronze serpent, Hezekiah is teaching the people that stuff doesn't matter. We don't need a shiny temple. We need a temple that functions that isn't overrun, right? Isaiah 36, 1 and 2 simply skips the whole narrative and talks about the glorious future of Zion in chapter 35 of Isaiah. So what Isaiah is saying to Hezekiah right now is we have a wonderful future. God has plans for Judah, places to go. And frankly, I think that's the most encouraging message you could ever hear, especially when things look dim, things look dark, things look like the enemy's just going to overwhelm you and swamp you. Remember that God has a plan and a future for your life. And that's what Isaiah's pumping into Hezekiah's head. And Hezekiah's just playing a military strategy game here that's brilliant. Second Chronicles 32.8. With him, this is what Hezekiah says about Sennacherib, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Mm. Chronicles just tells this better. What Hezekiah is doing right now is he's going around and telling everybody what's about to happen. That God's going to do a wonder and it doesn't matter how many soldiers march up to that wall. They're not scared of the trial. They're ready for it. They're trusting in the Lord. They've, they've walled off their water source. They've made themselves a home. Assyria, with all their silver and gold gone, has no reason to attack them. And I think this is spiritually important. Hezekiah has given Assyria no reason to attack. He stops making payments, which he shouldn't have to. That's the sovereignty that he has. And then Assyria starts coming with their armies, and he says, look, what do you need me to pay you off? So he pays them off as much as he can. So the attack from Assyria at this point is pure and bitter cruelty. It has no strategic benefit. It costs Assyria money to march up into these hills to take out Jerusalem. So it's of no benefit other than that they just want to eradicate the Jews from the planet Earth. That's the only reason at this point. So Hezekiah is preparing for a showdown. This is what you call trust. He's ready to go. It's now personal. It's about Yahweh and this little king that says he trusts in Yahweh. We talked about Assyria religion before. That's the offensive part to Sennacherib, is that they think their God is bigger than Assyria. This is where it says it, verse 17. Then the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakah from Lachish with a great army against Jerusalem to King Hezekiah. 
And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they had come up, they went and stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool, which, by the way, has no water in it at this point. Right? So they're there to get water and there's nothing there. Which was by the highway to the Fuller's Field. This is the part that was newly constructed walls around this pool. The Tartan, the Rapsiris, and the Rapshika, all of those are titles. We could interpret them general, head of household, and cupbearer. So these would be the three major people short of Sennacherib of the kingdom. They're the, the heads of the chief positions, the ranking delegation. One representing the military, one representing the household of the king, one representing the mouth or the diplomat. So that would be the Rabshika. The cupbearer is the mouth of the king. They taste the food before the king tastes it. So if somebody wants to poison the king, the Rabshika gets the food first. But they also speak for the king. It's their mouth that's the important element. So this is the mouth of Sennacherib, an uh, image very clearly stolen by Tolkien when he has the mouth of Sauron come out in front of the gates, when everything looks like it's at its end. When the enemy has them surrounded, the mouth of Rabshakeh comes out and tries to humiliate and take the courage away from the people of God. So he's going out, he's the most verbal and prolific, and he, set, and, he, and he goes up and he came to Jerusalem, which means there's no resistance outside the city. In other words, Hezekiah is not attacking them. They're defending themselves. And by the aqueduct from the upper pool, likely this is that redirected aqueduct. This would be the southeastern corner of the city. They are looking up at Jerusalem at this point, geographically. So where they're sitting, they have to look up and see this city. So the walls would create almost like a Colosseum stadium type place. You could have tons of Israelites up on the walls watching these three people come out as a delegation. Well, when they had called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Hezekiah matches a delegation of three with similar positions, a couple exceptions. He doesn't send out his military leader. Also note that the people he sends out have names, right? The other three are position titles. So when it comes to the word of God, I just think that's a nice like ethnic bias that they have, right? Their people get names. The other people are just positions. Also note that these men are courageous. It is as likely as not that the Assyrians just kill them on the spot. So he sends out brave men to do this. What's recorded is significant and it's how evil operates. So we get this passage in chapter 18 that gives us a real insight into the tactics of the enemy when the enemy's trying to discourage us. And I'll go through six different tactics in this passage. They question, they make believe, they twist the word of God, they insult, they bear false witness, and then they outright try to demoralize and take away our courage. So each one of those, this mouth of Rabshakeh is just evil, every word dripping from his lips. Verse 19, then Rabshakeh said to them, say now to Hezekiah, note the, the, the dishonor of not using the title king, right? Right off the bat. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having plans and power for war, but they're mere words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? It's very clear from Chronicles that Sennacherib had spies in Jerusalem because this Rabshakeh knows a lot about what's happening inside the city, right? So this message comes up. The mouth of Assyria asks a mocking question. 
um, skipping King Hezekiah, but then announcing the great king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. You speak of having plans, no specifics? In, in whom do you trust? If they had spies, they knew exactly whom Hezekiah was telling them to trust in. He was telling them to trust in the Lord. But they don't bother to say the name here. Uh, it, it's his lead, lead question then is tactic number one. He's questioning where, why they're putting their trust in Hezekiah as a leader. He's undermining the leadership. Then 21, now look, you are trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which a ma- if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt to all who trust him? Do you trust in Egypt? Nah, it can't be that. Historically, the northern kingdom tried for an alliance with Egypt. It's possible that Assyria is assuming that Hezekiah has done the same. In Isaiah, it's told that they were told not to make a deal with Egypt. And from what we know, Hezekiah never did make a deal with Egypt. Or if he tried, Assyria has already broken the force of the Egyptian army. They don't have much to help with at this point. And Egypt had a much bigger army than Jerusalem does. Historically, um, the army of Egypt was beaten at the Battle of El Teca. And it's a massive battle. The Assyrians absolutely decimated them. The the Egyptian army is in no shape to help anybody. And that's what they're pointing out, right? You don't have hope in Egypt. This broken reed image, really interesting. It's the same image that Isaiah uses when he's recording his counsel about Egypt. It's almost like they had spy in the throne room or in the courts of Hezekiah. They got this information from very high up. Prophecy that they would fall comes in chapter 20. And Isaiah 19 and 30 both give counsel to just not bother with Egypt. They're not going to help you. So if Hezekiah is doing everything right and he's following the word of the Lord, he didn't go and try to, he built the walls of Jerusalem. He knew an attack was coming because Isaiah told him. So the addition to the obvious is that Egypt isn't there. So that's fairly obvious. Hezekiah is there. So if there were delegations going out to Egypt for help, they didn't arrive. Uh, Evil loves to state a truth like Egypt can't help you. Or for us, like, you're a sinner, you're a loser, you can't do anything on your own. Evil loves that argument, but the point is to bring shame instead of glory. What God says is, you are a sinner, and I'm here to redeem you. Egypt's nowhere to be found, but God is here to save them. So the good news is that we don't have to listen to the truth of this world. We can listen to what God has to say to us. Evil starts with bad information, and then they believe in it. And they move forward with that. Even saying God's word says something that it doesn't. God's word says to trust in the Lord. And here they're just, you know, they're taking half information and half-baked information and playing it out. So they're not supposed to trust in Egypt. They're supposed to trust in God. Verse 22, if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Again, this is why in the Lord of the Rings, they just cut this guy's head off. It's the better move. Everything that pours out of his mouth is just twisted. So evil uses twisted information. Did he take down the high places? Yes. Were they Yahweh's high places? No, but he's appealing to the people who like those spots. He's giving them reason to rebel against Hezekiah. He confuses true worship with false worship. This is the same mistake that Jeroboam made. The Rabshakeh is a way 
and all of Israel reforms. And this twisting implies that those those reformations were a legalist, like Hezekiah, he's such a legalist. He's taking away your high places. He's robbing you of everything you love. That's an easy argument to make, but God said to worship in Jerusalem, not the high places. So he's encouraging the disregard God's word by questioning Hezekiah's word. It's a lot easier to question a human than it is God. It's a selective understanding of the scriptures. And evil does this all the time. Satan does it to Jesus in the wilderness. I'm going to give you the word of God and I'm going to twist it and selectively understand what it says. Well, if you love God, follow the whole book. Not just parts of it. Deuteronomy 16, 6. You must offer it only at the designated high place of worship, the place of the Lord your God chooses before his name to be honored. Sacrifice it there in the evening as the sun goes down and on the anniversary of your exodus from Egypt. That's the command. They're not supposed to be doing things on high places. So he twists God's word and he says something that it doesn't say, questioning the authorship of the law. That's what evil does. Here's the next one, 23. Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to put riders on them. It's implying that they don't even have 2,000 soldiers guarding the city. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't trust a word out of this thing's mouth. It's insulting and it's undermining. So the comment implies that they don't have enough soldiers to sit on the horses, even if they were given the gift of horses. Psalm 20, verse 7 some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That's what the word of God says. You're weak, you're unable, you're pathetic, you're worthless. You're not even worth the supplies we could give you if we wanted to give them to you. That's Satan saying a half-truth once again. And it's meant to make people feel weak and unable to do things. And Satan uses this argument. You're not good enough, you're not smart enough. But you know what the word of God says? Word of God says, 1 Corinthians 4.10, we are fools for Christ's sake. And if you're wise in Christ, we are weak, but you, we are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished and we are dishonored. We're just the servants of a much greater king. So the Rabshakeh is saying, we want you to serve our king. And the people of God are saying, we're going to serve the Lord God. We don't bow to Assyria. This is great. Keep it coming, Satan. Like, we're just getting warmed up with this. Here's the next one, verse 24. How then will you repel one captain of the least of my masters? I could save my lowest soldier and have him attack your city and take it. You're nothing. We just took Lachish. Jerusalem doesn't scare us. And so how will you then repel one captain of the least of my master's servants and put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I now... Have I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up and against this land and destroy it. Now he's claiming he's heard from God. This is called false witness. He's bearing false witness. Look, I'm doing evil and nobody's stopping me. That must mean that God agrees with my evil. This is horrible logic, but it's great for the enemy because it's demoralizing. It's hurtful. He knows the name of Yahweh. Don't, don't mistake here that in verse 25, where it has those all capital letters, he's using Yahweh, the very specific God of the Jews. So he knows the name of Yahweh, Jehovah, the unwritten name of God. He's just shouting it out. He's not saying God. He's saying Lord, Yahweh here. That's a lie, too. He's using the Lord's name in vain. So again, he's showing perhaps some of the most impressive knowledge of, of Isaiah's teachings and prophecies. He's showing a knowledge of the word of God. He's showing that he's understood these things. He just doesn't believe them. 
and he's using them for his own purposes. Isaiah 10.5, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger and the staff of, in their hand is mine. <laughs> By twisting it, Isaiah is speaking words into Hezekiah's ear going, God hates these people. Look at what they're doing. Just wait. God's going to be here for us. He won't let his promise die. He never has. That's an easy thing to say when we read back on it. That's a not an easy thing to say when you have six-figure soldiers sitting outside your city. They use God's name in vain. Hezekiah is speaking for the house of God. Rabshakeh is not speaking for God. Isaiah 31.1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots, and there are many, and in horsemen because they're strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel. I think I put that quote in the wrong place. That should have been back up with the horses. So that's what Isaiah was telling them when they did that. Where do you put your trust? You put your, your, put your trust in what, you're, what you see in the spirit, not what you see in the flesh. We're going to trust in the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Joshua, David. Now we're going to trust in the God of Hezekiah. We're going to see God do amazing things. Verse 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic. <laughs> this is great response. Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So there's one of two ways to read this. If you think Hezekiah's lost faith at this point, then what they're saying here is we're scared of the people on the wall hearing what you have to say. And that would be a valid way to read this. If you think Hezekiah knows what he's doing and he and the elders and these three guys, they got a plan and they're ready to do this fight, they're coming out to pick a fight right now. They're not coming out to make nice with this guy. So they don't want the people on the wall to hear these lies because they're so twisted and convoluted they confuse people. They want people to be clear on things. So it's not in fear of this, but they recognize what it is and they're protecting the flock. And I think it's funny, right? At this time, they're talking to him in Hebrew and they ask to be spoken to in Aramaic. First of all, Aramaic becomes the language of the land. It's the language of commerce in this area of history. It stays all the way through Jesus's time. Jesus would have grown up speaking Aramaic. At this time, that said, they don't want answer the mouth of Assyria and they never respond to any of his taunts. He just did five or six nasty, cruel things came out of his mouth. And they say, hey, could you talk to us in Aramaic? Like, that's their response to this whole thing. And I just think that's beautiful. That's a godly person giving a very graceful response that misdirects and doesn't respond to it. Even Jesus responded with the word of God, right? These guys are just like, yeah, could you talk to us in Aramaic? That'd be okay with you. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk together. Let's work this out. There's no chance of working this out. Evil doesn't do courtesy. It's too self-important. Evil does attack, cruelty, putting people down. Verse 27, but the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? That's not a nice thing to say. That's just mean. You're going to make us eat poop? So, sixth thing evil does is it tries to just demoralize. At this point, it's just into insults and, and picking on people. Point being, he's going to speak loudly so everybody can hear him because evil loves to be heard. Loudly, intimidating. 
The louder and the bigger platform evil can get, the better. Just give it YouTube and see what happens. Like, this is just how it operates. Evil wants everybody to agree with them, and they go public first before they've won an argument. Evil wants everyone to surrender before there's even a fight. Don't battle us, we'll take you to court. And they want the fear of something to stop the actions of the righteous. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing when you just see it once or twice in the Bible. It's just throughout the Bible we see evil acting the same way. And even in today's history, it shouldn't surprise anybody. So I encourage Christians, don't get worked up over the news. It shouldn't surprise anybody what happens when evil raises its head. Satan tries to do this with Jesus. He uses the word. He trysts it. Jesus doesn't give up. He just gives him the word of God back, and he moves forward. Satan hates the actual fight. He gives in with Jesus. He doesn't actually get into it with Jesus. Because as soon as you stand your ground and you're strong and courageous, Satan prefers to not get in that fight because he knows what happens when he does. He's going to lose. If he can get Jerusalem to just give up, Satan knows darn well that he's going to win this battle. If God's people only stand on God's word, he can't win the battle. So he relies on fear. So the tactics here, questioning, making make-believe, Twisting arguments, insulting, false witness, and demoralizing loudly. That's the tactics of Satan. We shouldn't be surprised when we see it. The mouth of Assyria thinks he's in control, complete arrogance in the face of God, using God's name, and his argument is give up because Egypt can't help you, give up because Hezekiah's too bossy, and give up because you're weak, and give up because God talks to me just as much as you. Who are you to say God doesn't talk to me? absolute defiance. To an unbeliever, this is all horrible truth. It sounds true in every regard. It is true in every regard. But to a believer, it's missing a layer. And that is that God is on his throne and God's in control. Don't miss this message for today. We have too many Christians getting too worked up about the news. God is still on his throne and he's still in control and he still loves you. Know that. Understand that. Let that bake in a little bit. So now we just get this arrogant, corrupt vileness coming out of the mouth. He can't wait to defy God. Verse 28, then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew. and spoke. So he doesn't respect their request. This isn't diplomatic. He's not here to make peace. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you from this hand. Don't trust your leaders, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't trust your God or what your leaders are telling you about God. Verse 31, don't listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make peace with me by a present and come out to me. And every one of you will eat from his own vine and every one of you from his own fig tree. And every one of you will drink the waters of his own cistern. If you just agree with me, we'll have peace. If you just do it my way, you'll all be in, we'll have a beautiful world together. And everybody gets their own fig tree. I think this is the ancient world's way of saying, everybody gets their own hot tub. We're all going to live great if only we do what they tell us to do. But what they tell us to do has nothing to do with prosperity at all. If only you use the words we want you to use and call the king the, the person we think you should call king. If only you do that, we'll all live happily. But that has nothing to do with the economy. How does that plant more fig trees? If you want more fig trees, plant more fig trees. Trust Assyria. Don't trust in the Lord. 
Verse 32, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive groves and honey, that you may live and not die. This is a veiled threat. If you do it my way, we'll ship you off to places where you can live happily ever after. Right? Everything's wonderful in our world. Or you'll die. Those are your options. Trust Assyria and life will be good or else. Life with us that's all happy or death and punishment. But don't listen to Hezekiah lest he persuade you saying the Lord will deliver us. That implies that that's exactly what Hezekiah was telling them. If we trust anything from his mouth, we trust the attacks, right? That's exactly what Hezekiah was saying. The Lord's going to deliver us. The Lord will deliver us. I think there's probably people in Jerusalem that are doubting or struggling with that message. But their leadership's firm and resolute on it. We trust the Lord God Almighty will not let his promises die. This won't be the end of us. So it's a spiritual test for Judah. At least that's the argument of Second Chronicles and Isaiah for sure. Verse 33. Has any of the gods of all the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Has anybody stopped Assyria? You know, the answer to that is no. Nobody at this point in history has stopped Assyria. Where are, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim and Hena and Iva? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Even Samaria claimed to worship Yahweh at this point in history. Yahweh didn't save Samaria. Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Who do you think you are? We've defeated everyone. And you think you have something to offer? He thinks, he thinks how the world thinks, that power equals blessing. That the fact that they're powerful means God loves them and appreciates what they're doing. That's a false assumption. He assumes that Yahweh is like these other gods. That's a false assumption. So all these false gods are not compatible to Yahweh, and he doesn't get that. He assumes that what was going on in Samaria was like beating Yahweh. When Yahweh had lifted its hand, the writer of Kings has made that very clear. God walked away from the northern kingdom. He wasn't there to defend them. He thinks God's patience is the same as weakness, and it's not. And I think that's one of the mistakes evil makes. It doesn't get that point. Patience, peace, joy, those aren't weaknesses. They're assurances. Blessed assurance. The trials that they're going through are the same. This is the assumption. He assumes the trials are the same as abandonment, that God isn't with you because we're defeating you right now. He assumes that silence from God is the same as indifference from God. Doesn't Satan love that one? Was God responding to you? I've been praying for three months and I haven't heard from God. So do you assume then that he doesn't care? Because silence is not the same as indifference. They're very different. This was all to make them surrender. It was all a better option. And I wonder if God was testing, how long will they hold out? And he's given them an opportunity to stand, finally. The, the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand. This was the deal sealer here. Sennacherib is not framing. At the very end, he slips. It's not about Hezekiah and him. It's about the Lord and him. This is a spiritual battle. I think this last sentence is where the fight gets started from God's side. Is that when he says that the Lord, that Yahweh should deliver you, deliver Jerusalem from my hand. He's claiming more prominence than Yahweh. Yahweh will not be mocked. Don't go there. That's a step they shouldn't have taken. But the people, in verse 36, 
unbelievable. The people held their peace. They didn't yell back. They held their peace. They kept it in their heart and answered him not a word. Can you imagine, given all that mockery and that stuff that's worked on every other city and people just weakly fold, but the cities of Jerusalem have fought and held out. They get to the final one, and uh, the cities of Judah, and they get to Jerusalem, and he gives all that mockery, all these arguments in the flesh, and then just silence. At that point, Sirachim knows, oh, oh, this fight is on. These people are here to go. All that silence for the king's commandment was do not answer him. Hezekiah knew exactly this. He was giving them silver and gold to buy time. And my thought, verse 36, he was then training people for how the inevitable battle was going to play out. Because Isaiah was telling them everything. The people were trained. They were ready. They were filled with faith. They had living water inside their walls. They held their peace because they had peace. They were good to go. We know the Lord will either will die and this whole story is over or God's going to save us and his promises will be held true. On those two either ors, I'm going to put my money on God keeping his promises because he always has, no matter how dark it gets. It's never so dark that God's not waiting for you on the other side. Some people say, I got to see a light at the end of the tunnel. No, you don't. You just need to have faith that the Lord will be there. The light will come to you. He's there. He's waiting. Hold your peace. Hezekiah prepared them well. Evil's intimidating, but it's predictable. You know what the attacks are. You know where they're coming from. Oh, but they just, they, they keep coming. And I just, but we knew that was how Satan attacks. We know that. Don't be surprised by it. Satan's going to go at, he's going to make you look at the fall of northern Israel. Some of the Jewish people have already fallen. He points to the failures of the Jewish people in the past. Satan does that to us all the time. Look at the sins you've committed. Shame on you. Shame on what you've done wrong. You're not useful for God because you're such a sinner. Baloney. God wants the next day of your life, not the last days of your life. He wants to look forward. He knows the sweet words go hand in hand with insults. We know that about the enemy. Mockery comes with vain words. Okay, bring it. It's just stuff. They didn't get all tunneled up for nothing. They dug the Hezekiah tunnel for a reason because they knew the battle was coming. God's people got prepared. Noah built an ark. Moses built a tabernacle. It wasn't that the battles weren't out there. It's that God's people got ready for them. They knew they were coming. So not a word. The people didn't fight. They didn't argue. They didn't debate. Christians fail over and over and over again by thinking that arguing with evil is going to do anything but, but tick evil off. They don't argue with evil. They don't need to argue with ego. We tell kids this all the time. You don't have to be defensive. Just say, okay, I'm sorry. I was wrong. It's easy. But evil wants to argue all the time. It's nearly always better to hold our tongue instead of arguing with evil. We trust in God. We don't have to convince the evil that God's in charge. The evil knows what God is. At this point in time, it's time to fight. It's time for a battle for which... Israel, if they have less than 2,000, is facing, how many are, is it 100,000 or 200,000 outside the gates? Do you remember the number? That would be there, 120,000. 120,000, that's why I love my wife. 120,000 versus maybe less than 2,000, unless Rabshika was lying, which we can assume, so maybe they have 10, 20,000 to defend the city. Still, one to five odds, one to six odds. 
in the flesh, there's no way they're going to win this. They're absolutely trusting in the Lord for their victory, which is exactly what they're being accused of doing. So they're being accused of the very thing that they're told to do by God. The king's commandment was, hold your tongue. They're not only obedient to God, they're obedient to Hezekiah. And they believe Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God through the temple system. Things are clicking and they're working. So the obedience to Jesus, teaching God's word, is the answer to the slithering evil of the world. Christians, don't get upset by what's happening out there. Turn your heads to the word of God and know what it says. That's the only battle we have to fight, is our own laziness. And if we do fight that battle and we win it, we also beat evil at the same time. We don't, God does. But our battle is to get ourselves in the word and frankly love one another, minister to one another. That's the command Jesus give us. Love one another. Take care of each other. Verse 37, we'll wrap up for the night. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Apheth the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Unlike Lord of the Rings, they don't chop his head off. Like, that's not the biblical part of this story. They don't say a word, but they do tear their clothes. I think it's interesting that we've seen these names repeated over and over and over again. I think they were heroes. I think the reason that the book of Kings writes their name and their position, who their dads were, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, is because these men had such a position of honor and glory. And after this battle's all said and done, these guys were the heroes. They were the ones that put their necks on the line, stood in front of the Assyrians, and said not a word. Other than, could you please speak Aramaic? <laughs> right? They just kept their cool. They held their peace. They had their joy. The, the heroes of God's kingdom are the people that can just be happy in the face of anything because we have the love of God. They do tear their clothes. This is upsetting. They're deeply hurt. This guy just used the Lord's name in vain. He bore false witness. He has other gods before him. He breaks like half of the commandments and he's about to do murder, right? So this is offensive in that he is, this guy has absolutely crossed the line, but the words alone make this terror, something that's very tempting to listen to. The standing army of 120,000 men makes this even more convincing to listen to the evil. But they don't. Every sense of this is they have a complete understanding that Assyria is in the flesh in complete control right here. But in the spirit is what they're going to choose to believe. This feeling that they have isn't the whole story. The fact that they're rending their clothes, that's not the end of this story. But it doesn't say that God's people don't get upset. We do get upset. When we see evil in this world, it is upsetting, but it's a different place. It's not upset to hopelessness, but it's upset to injustice. That stuff is wrong. So we get people, we were talking about this today, we get people called into politics all the time. Godly people that say, I'm going to go and be in a I'm going to step into that gap and fight those fights because and so God raises up fighters that go fight in the political arena. Praise God for those people. And as, as a people, we should be supporting those folks and helping them to fight those fights. Yet the feeling here that they have, the upsetness that they have is not how they choose to act. They don't act on their feelings. They act on the commands of Hezekiah and the Lord God Almighty. I think that's great. It's okay to feel bad, but act differently. So they rend their clothes, they go back, they repeat everything that's said. The fact that they have to tell him the words of the Rabshakeh had to just hurt, like, to say that he said these things. They have to repeat and relive this evil to fight this battle. 
And that's about the, the worst thing they're going to have to do in this because God's going to take care of the rest of it next week. So we'll pick up in chapter 19 next week. For now, let's pray and chat about it a bit. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read your word and gain assurances that apply to today. Thank you, Lord, that we can go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, and we can understand your will for this planet. And we can understand the nature of evil, not that we want to, it's, it hurts to even talk about it, uh, but Lord, but we can be aware of it and not surprised when it rears its ugly head. Lord, we know that there is a spiritual war that's happening and it starts in our lives, but it also goes to our fellowship. It goes to our state and to our country and to the world at large. And we know you're on your throne, Lord. You're on your throne through all of it. So we'll put our trust in you. We'll follow your commandments. Lord, we'll put up our defenses. We'll gather our, our living water to ourselves. And Lord, we will conduct ourselves with peace and with joy, even in the toughest of situations. Lord, we will take our actions over our feelings any day because we know that you're in control. We know that you're in charge. So whatever trials come and whatever things are there, Lord, we're not asking for trials. We'd love to not have trials. But as they come, give us courage and strength. Help us to be strong and courageous, to live in trust and not in fear. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.